Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to dearest product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Greg Bernstein. Greg is a leading voice in the UX research community and is currently a user research lead at Condé Nast, the media company behind such storied titles as The New Yorker, Wired, Vanity Fair, Vogue, and GQ. Before joining Condé Nast, Greg held a number of senior UX research roles, including at Vox Media and MailChimp. At Vox, Greg started as the first and only UX researcher and led the development of the research practice from the ground up. And at MailChimp, he was one of two original UX researchers and went on to become the first research leader at the company and leaving behind an established practice when he moved on. In January, to wide acclaim, Greg published a generous contribution to the global UX research community. It's called Research Practice, Perspectives from UX Researchers in a Changing Field. And it's a book that helps aspiring researchers to see inside the field through the stories and experiences of current practitioners. Across his 10 years as a UX researcher, Greg has shared his knowledge in a number of forums across the world, speaking at UX New Zealand, UX Fest, and UX Scotland, amongst many others. Greg has also featured on a number of podcasts, such as previous Brave UX guests, Steve Portugal's Dollars to Donuts. And you guessed it, Greg is now here on Brave UX to speak with me. Greg, welcome to the show. Brandon, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure to have you here, Greg. And I really did enjoy researching for our conversation today. You've got some great stories and you've made some great contributions to the field, as I mentioned in your intro. And first question, though, I like to start on a serious note almost always. And full disclosure, I have watched your UX New Zealand talk. InSync, really? InSync is a classic. I think if you were to re-listen to them today, you would maybe have a newfound appreciation for them, the harmonies, the beats. I think they were ahead of their time. So I recommend giving them another listen. <laughs> okay, we will link to some InSync in the show notes just so everyone can relive the 90s. <laughs> I was going to say, on, what yeah. Brendan's referencing is I, I referenced InSync in the intro to my talk at UX New Zealand, and I think now he's poking fun at me for it. Well, the other option was the Backstreet Boys, Greg. So, I mean, there wasn't really a good choice in, in there as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Understood. But, but I did think that was, it was interesting to talk about music with you because I understand that you used to be a graphic designer before you were a UX researcher and you used to design the album covers for a number of Midwest punk bands. And now we're sort of starting to talk more my musical genre. Well, at least what my musical genre was when I was a skateboarding teenager. And I believe there's a bit of a story there as to how you got started in design for the music industry, and it involved a print store and a fortunate encounter. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about that? I can. So when I was in college, uh, I discovered graphic design pretty late in my education. I was studying advertising, but I knew I wanted to be a designer. So I started taking some design classes unofficially, 
the professors were kind enough to let me into their classes to observe. And I was able to go to the computer labs and I was really teaching myself as much as possible. And I got a job at a local print shop as their in-house designer. And one of the customers who came in frequently was REM's uh, creative director. Uh, this is in Athens, Georgia, where I live now and where I lived at the time, home of REM as well as the B-52s. But when REM's creative director would come in, I asked him if he might be interested in a unpaid intern who could watch him work because I knew I wanted to design albums. I had friends in bands. I had friends putting out records. I thought that maybe if I could intern for REM, I'd pick up some tips. And I certainly did. He he took me up on that offer. His name was Chris Bilheimer. I would go to the REM office at two in the morning and help him scan photos. And he would show me tips and throw work my way eventually. So that was my, my entry into designing for bands and labels. Um, and I was able to parlay that into working, you know, with some Midwestern punk bands and indie bands and over 10 years ended up building a career really out of designing for bands and record companies. Just want to come back to Chris. Have you seen his website lately? It hasn't changed in about 15 years, but if I recall, it's screenshots of David Letterman introducing bands he's designed albums for. And it's a bunch of photos of David Letterman holding albums he actually designed. So that's his portfolio. That is, and it's great because it has the words. It's very simple, right? It says, this was the easiest way to make a portfolio. And I just thought that that was just brilliant. I thought that's a really, really uh, sums it up, doesn't it? If you can get David Letterman to hold up your work multiple times, you've uh, you've done pretty well. (laughs) Is punk dead? Uh, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question, but I mean, what? Yeah, I I can't answer that one, Brendan. I'm sorry. (laughs) It sounds like you might you might you might be worried about getting some abuse if you if you answer in the affirmative. I'm going to go out there on a limb and suggest that I I believe it is. Unfortunately, I think the last punk show I went to was Pennywise about 12 years ago, and I remember standing on the side of the stage because I was a stagehand at the time, and I was talking to Randy, who was the he's the bass guitarist from from Pennywise, as I mentioned, and I asked him how old he was, and he said he was 44 or something at the time, and I was like 19 going back 15, 16 years. So, I mean, he must be in his 50s or 60s now. So I'm going to go with punk is, punk is, punk is dead. You heard I, it. You know what? Now, as you were talking, I thought of a, a counterpoint, which okay. is a lot of the people who I became friendly with through the punk scene, they figured out ways to maintain that punk ethos through their careers, whether it was becoming an independent journalist or a writer charting a career path that might not follow a traditional or linear career trajectory by figuring out how to make things happen for yourself. So I think the punk ethos is still alive and well. It We might not see it the same way we used to through punk music, but I still think that that punk ideal exists and is, is instructive and, and provides a pathway to maybe a, a different way of finding a career. Uh, I guess it, it informed how I thought about my work. I just always figured... I can make things happen for myself, you know, becoming a designer without really a lot of formal training, figuring out how to become a professor, figuring out how to become a UX researcher. I think that all stems from being exposed to the punk rock scene where bands are putting out their records, booking their own shows, making their own t-shirts to sell. So I'm, I'm going to say punk's not dead. It's still very much alive. Good. I like it. That was a nice provocative little segment. And I, I do hear what you're saying. And I think looking at your career, as you've talked about, Greg, it's pretty evident that you've managed to successfully reinvent yourself a number of times. I was curious to understand that transition from the design of 
of of music uh, of album covers into UX research. What was it that made you want to leave or forced you to leave? I mean, I don't know. What? Why did you leave graphic design and, and head into the field of UX research? There's a few reasons. The first reason I left design is I was burned out on it. You know, when all you do are albums, T-shirts, LPs, you're working on the same canvas repeatedly. And I just got a little burned out on doing that over and over. Another reason is, you know, designing for punk bands or indie bands is not lucrative. It was not a way to, you know, build any savings. Uh, so, you know, I, I really needed to find a way to generate more income uh, for me and my family. I still loved talking about design. I still loved solving design problems. My favorite part of working with a new client or, or you know, a band was listening to what their ideas were, what they were trying to express and trying to figure out how we achieve that vision together. And so fortunately, a friend of mine was a professor at Georgia State University. And as I was achieving peak burnout, he said to me, hey, we could use a, an adjunct professor. Are you interested in teaching design to undergraduate students? And as soon as he said that, I thought, well, that sounds perfect because I'll still get to talk about think and think about design, but I won't have to be the one to actually create anything, which is the part that I was starting to dread. And so that started my transition to UX research, but I was teaching design. I loved it. I thought I might want to do it for the rest of my life. I went to grad school so that I could get my master's degree and teach for a living because that's what I was told you needed the master's degree in order to get a full-time teaching position. At least that's how it works here in the States. I went to grad school. I was working on my master's thesis. And then I discovered through a book by Luke Robluski, this entire world of UX. He wrote an entire book on web form design and all the thought that goes into what makes a usable form. And that was, that was even better than talking about what are we trying to solve with the design problem uh, or what problem are we trying to solve through design? That felt so focused and so practical and the whole idea of UX research just clicked with me. So I turned my master's thesis into a UX research project and that, that sealed the deal for me. I was uh, fortunate to meet Aaron Walter, who hired me at MailChimp. And he said, you know, I know you want to be a professor. Universities will be there forever. You can teach later in life, but I'd like you to do UX research for us here at MailChimp here and now. That was a pretty compelling offer. So that was my, that was the transition from design to design professor to UX researcher. You know, something that you can observe in people who have made successful careers for themselves is recognizing a great opportunity when one presents itself. And sometimes it's not always obvious. You know, you mentioned that opportunity with MailChimp, yet your heart was partly at least in this future for yourself of becoming a professor. What was it that was, I mean, look, if it was dollars, sure, let me know. But what was it that was so compelling? Like, why did you why did you choose MailChimp over something that you also clearly really enjoyed? There's a few reasons. Number one is I was not going to move. I live in Athens, Georgia, like I mentioned. It's home. My family is nearby. My kids are in school here. So I didn't really have a lot of options. And this was before everybody was hired remote. MailChimp was an hour and 10 minute commute by car from my house, which compared to not having a job in tech, an hour, an hour and 10 minutes is manageable. Um, so proximity was one reason. I, I knew that there was not going to be another chance to work in a tech company doing UX research. The second, though, is the, the strength of Aaron Walter's career and how he had such a similar background. He also came from an education background. 
he was a professor. He showed me or demonstrated that he was still able to teach by blogging, by being transparent about what he was doing at MailChimp, by speaking at conferences, by participating in podcasts. And that reframing of, I'm an educator, but maybe I'm educating people in a different way through through my words, through blog posts, through conference talks, that really uh, showed me that there was another path to teach people and and show the good you know work that I was doing and that the team was doing. So I felt like I wasn't really having to trade off. In fact, by blogging, I, I was making my work even more accessible. And, and I've kept that lesson throughout my career, which is I'm, I'm trying to teach everything I'm learning and, and be as transparent as possible, whether it's sharing a, a method, sharing a, a philosophy, uh, sharing just work in progress that uh, my team is doing. I still feel like I'm a teacher, so I don't feel like I had to really make that big of a trade-off. And to his point, I still get asked to come and lecture at universities, so I still get to teach, and I feel like I'll get to teach full-time at a later date. So it's almost like he could see the future, and you could obviously see a bright future and taking that opportunity at MailChimp and still be able to contribute in the way that you have. I want to come back. You mentioned a book earlier, and I want to come back to another book that I believe has been influential in your career, and that's a book called How to Be a Graphic Designer Without Losing... Uh, Your Soul by Adrian Shaughnessy. Hopefully I pronounced yeah. that correctly. Tell us about that book. How did how did that book help to shape your career? Unfortunately, they, I came across that book late in my design career when I was already burned out. And something I should also mention about being a designer of punk rock albums, I did not do everything right. I was not good at marketing myself. I was not good at setting up agreements. You know, uh, if you've followed Mike Montero's career, it's basically everything he's he's railed against uh, for the last decade, but it wasn't until I was late in my design career that I came across Adrian Shaughnessy's book. And what I loved about the book was it wasn't about how to make a good design or you know how to pick out the right typeface. The book was how to set up your business, how to work with clients, how to be a professional. And it was everything that I had been missing in my, my design business. Um, and then, you know, Mike Montero's book, which now that I need to think about it, I can't recall the title. I I will look on my bookshelf in a moment, but he wrote a similar book that was really about how to be a professional designer and work with clients and set up agreements. So Adrian design is a job, right? Design is a job. Yes. Thank you. But Adrian Shaughnessy's book was, it was more geared towards the uh, graphic designer and it was like it was written for me and I wish he had written it much earlier in my career. But that book really, it served... I don't want to say it was a template, but I had that in mind when I was thinking about my own book, which is also, you know, how to work in UX as a UX researcher. What are the practical steps you need to know? What are the practical tips? Yeah. I mean, we're kind of surrounded and drowning almost in how to how, how to run a method or all the technicalities and the techniques that make up UX research. But it's almost like you identified this gap there around, well, what does it actually mean? to be a UX researcher? How, how do you actually do the professional side of this practice? Now, I understand also that there was something that someone said that was somewhat influential in the decision or in the way in which you have written this book and why you chose to write it in the way that you wrote it. And that was Mandy Brown, who was your former manager, I believe, at Fox Media. What advice did she give you about writing a book? Mandy is one of the greatest managers I've ever worked under. And when we were talking, she had previously served as editor for a book apart. Um, so she had a lot of experience in publishing and obviously we were, we were working in publishing at Vox Media, but she had helped me with framing how to think about content and 
asking yourself, is this a blog post? Is this a conference talk? Is this a book? And she helped me with that framework to think about, you know, is this something that I can stretch out into a longer piece? Is this something where, you know, a tweet is really going to sum it up? You know, is a blog <laughs> post enough? Uh, and so I've always had that in mind in, in trying to evaluate what content, um, what, what the shape of content should be. But there was another person I want to mention who was also influential in shaping this book, which uh, that is Sean Townsend, who is now leading research for Coinbase. But at the time, she was leading research at Intercom. When I started to write a book, I was writing it from my own perspective, which was fairly limited because I, I hadn't worked in an enterprise organization. I hadn't worked you know, in healthcare. I hadn't really worked in languages outside of English. And Sean, when I was interviewing her for content, she said, you know, instead of you interviewing a million people and asking them to share with you, why don't you just have them write their own experiences and, you know, they contribute their own essays or, or thoughts on various topics you propose, uh, because it's a model that she had used at Intercom when they published their own books. As soon as she said that, I, I, you know, the light bulb went off. So I'd already had Mandy's advice. I knew there was a book here. With Sean's additional advice, I knew that I could crowdsource this and, and make it a, a truly representative book. So I, I think the two of them uh, shaped the, the, the shape of the book. You know, I was thinking about that, the crowdsourcing of the book when I was preparing, and I wondered, did that make it easier or more difficult to bring this together? It made it infinitely more difficult. Uh, <laughs> But I also have no regrets about doing it. You know, when it was just me, I, I felt like I had a finished book because it was all my words. I, I knew mm -hmm. I had control over everything. Once I started bringing in other voices, I had to think about how totally disparate pieces of content would flow next to each other, how to ensure consistency and style across multiple essays. I mean, it's a pretty thick book. There's a lot of content in it. And just keeping track of all the submissions, making sure that they were similar, making sure that there was flow, that was pretty daunting. There was also the matter of getting releases so that, you know, I had permission to publish the book. There was the matter of making sure everybody got a copy, making sure everybody approved what I, the book had turned into and giving me a thumbs up or thumbs down or making corrections. So it was quite a lot of project management more so than writing. But I also had a, a hack or a pro tip here, which was hiring a professional development editor to shepherd this product uh, or this project along. I hired Nicole Fenton. They are an author themselves. They are also a content strategist and a writer. So having Nicole help me with every aspect of this publication was, if, if I didn't have Nicole's help, I don't know what this book would have looked like. It sounds like they were quite instrumental in actually getting this across the finish line. Absolutely. N Nicole was able to help me chunk the content into uh, meaningful chapters or sections and also just able to catch so many typos uh, or grammatical uh, errors. So they were, they were quite instrumental in getting this to the finish line. Well, let's talk about the, the chapters. I think I mentioned in the introduction that the book, at least my take on it, is that it's really written for people that are in career transition that want to move into UX research or people that are, you know, uh, younger people that it may be their first field that they decide to work in. You know, what is the, what are the sort of topics that you're covering and, and how are you intending to try and help those people make a more successful career in UX research? 
Yeah, the the content of the book really came out of the questions I would wow. be asked after a conference talk or, you know, after writing something, I would get, you know, emailed questions or LinkedIn questions. And most of the questions were about various parts of the UX research career. So how do I transition into this field? Okay, I'm in this field. How do I level up and become a senior researcher? Um, I'm a senior researcher. How do we become a manager? What does management mean? How do I become a leader? Uh, how do I work with stakeholders? You know, where do That's I go after one. I've, yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't quite figured that one out yet. Uh, <laughs> I don't think anyone's but, really got that down, but we're, we're working on it, people. We're working on it. <laughs> but but really the book is meant for every stage of a UX research career and, and what you might need to know. And it, it even covers, you know, two of my favorite chapters are around the challenges of being a UX researcher. Uh, and then where, where might we go next? Which that one is also on my mind because it seems like there's a, a top of the ladder and then there's really nowhere else to go unless you transition to becoming a PM or something else entirely. So it really is supposed to cover the entire spectrum of the career of a UX researcher. Yeah, I think I've heard you say before that there's very, it's very rare to see a, a VP or a or, a, or a, a, C, a chief research officer, a CRO that sort of tops out usually at director. Yeah, it is, it is rare. You know, I think uh, at Airbnb, they they have VP of research. User interviews has Roberta Dombrowski, who's VP of, of research. But those roles are few and far between. And I'd love to see us add another rung to the ladder and make that more commonplace. I like it. Call, call to arms, everybody. Let's Let's make it happen. <laughs> Greg, I'm going to ask you a little bit about your own experience, having realized that through your experience at the time you started writing the book, that you didn't necessarily have the breadth or the depth that you believed the people who the book was for deserved to have in isolation, which is why you brought in other voices. What role, I mean, that strikes me as being a very humble self-recognition and thing to act upon. What role does humility play in being an effective researcher? I think humility is absolutely essential. We have to be subservient to the people we are speaking to, we're studying. We have to be subservient to the data we're collecting. And that takes being humble and, and throwing out any preconceived ideas, throwing out any sense of, I know what I need to do, or I know what we need to do here. I just have to give myself to the data I'm collecting or to the the insights I'm I'm uncovering. And you can't have an ego to do that. You have to realize we don't have all the answers um, and it's up to us to find them, but they're not going to come from ourselves. You know, if you just rely on your gut, you're not doing anybody any favors. You're, you're very limited in your perspective. So I, I felt that way about the book when I realized not everybody has, a, has worked at a, you know, MailChimp and Vox Media, which when I started the book, that's really the perspective I was coming from was I, I had these experiences in these two places and they were great experiences. They were helpful to me. That's not going to be helpful to everyone. And I I owed it to the people who would be reading this book to solicit other perspectives because mine was not going to be enough to be useful to anybody unless they happen to apply to MailChimp or Vox Media. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the key insight. And I hear 100% what you're saying about recognizing that we're there to 
be in effect subservient to our users to truly try and understand them and we can't really inject a lot of ego into that conversation otherwise we're not really hearing what it is that they're saying to us and being we're not able to design products and services that really serve them well i i want to go into i want to take that thread and i want to go i want to run that into ux research as a as a function within the organization and the challenge that we spoke about a little earlier around not really having that executive leadership and i was curious to know if if any if you see any danger in ux research or researchers positioning themselves as uh, a service within the wider organization to other functions as opposed to an expert function in and of itself i do see a danger in strictly positioning yourself as a service, you become nothing but a usability testing service. You end up coming into projects too late to make any difference. You're there to validate work that has already been locked in. And so I think that's not the best place for research to be. That's not to say that we shouldn't be doing evaluative research and doing usability work, but research needs to be brought in as early as possible so that you are doing the work that can make sure that we aren't building the wrong things so that we don't end up in a situation where even if we test something and we realize there's problems, it's too late to make changes. We need to be much more proactive than reactive. But that's also easier said than done. I've seen so many job postings. And and even before I accepted my role at uh, Condé Nast, where I am now, I interviewed at places that had this idea that research was mostly usability testing. You are there to test out ideas that have already been decided. And it really does require executive, not just leadership, but executive advocacy and evangelism for the practice of research. And it takes somebody from a leadership position to say, no, we do research ahead of time. Research will be in quarterly planning, in any kickoffs, so that we can get ahead of of the problems and not strictly be reactive. So I, <laughs> I I'm, just, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna repeat myself. Research has to be brought in as early as possible and it has to be empowered. Otherwise it will just be a service that really is not useful because it's too late to make any type of impact. And this is a fine line though, isn't it? Because one of our superpowers is that subservience to put our ego to the side to really yes. understand other people right? Whether they're people within our companies or the users or the, the customers that we seek to serve. Yet at the same time, we have this tension there with not being pushovers and actually playing the game to a degree to ensure that our work has impact and that we're actually able to deliver value for users. And we were sort of talking about the role or you were talking about the role of having executive leadership determine that research is of value and therefore is brought into planning and all the other ways in which the business works. What difference does it make in your experience or through your conversations with your peers to whom research reports to? So whether it's a chief technical officer, whether it's a chief design officer, whether it's a CPO, you know, does it, does it matter at all who research reports to at that executive level? As long as the executive is doing all they can to advocate for research, I don't care where it is in the organization. I have reported into design. I report into design now. It's absolutely the right place to be because 
the product and design organization is very collaborative and design and product are working together at the start of every project with research to figure out what do we need to know in order to make the best possible experience for our audience. I've reported into a chief product officer before that made sense at Vox Media where the CPO was able to put me in the right meetings or make sure I was on the right task force. Uh, I've reported into a UX practice before with the UX lead. As long as you're, as long as the person you're reporting into is empowered enough to make sure that research is in the right place and is represented, I'm pretty pragmatic about it. I've also seen it go sideways though, where research is reporting into the wrong place, where you don't have the exposure to what are the real problems, problems we need to solve, what are the biggest questions. In my book, I have advocated for researchers coming into an organization and figuring out what a quick win might look like as a way to demonstrate the power of research and, and you know, what research can accomplish. And it's a, I thought of it as a way to get executive buy-in and get people to understand how to work with research. However, if you take on that tightly scoped project, if you don't have the right leadership empowering you or making sure it's the right tightly scoped project, that's not setting you up for success. It's making people think like, why is that person working on that thing? Why is research working on this weird thing that nobody cares about when they should be working <laughs> on this important thing? So the wrong leader or the wrong person telling you what to work on can just derail research and not set you up for success. So it really does, it doesn't matter who it is, as long as it's the right leader advocating for research to be in the right meetings. So that notion of when you join a company, trying to find that right executive leader that's going to enable you to work on a project or on a product where you can have the opportunity to demonstrate the value of research. That makes a lot of sense. That's I think that's some really solid advice. Something else that I hear at least a lot quite quite often that we advise other researchers to do is and we I mean as a field is to evangelize the work, you know, put, put, put the work in the way of people so that they can collide with it. Post your findings, bring people into the research process, expose them to conversations with customers, all these types of techniques and methods, right? I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. And the reason I say that is it seems like that we have to put ourselves out there more than perhaps other professions do. You know, I don't see the in-house legal team doing roadshows of what it means to be in-house counsel. You know, I don't see the finance team, you know, going to, to, to the design or the engineering team and going, hey, look, this is all the amazing stuff we do in finance, which no doubt there is some amazing stuff they do. Do you get the sense that we are cheerleading ourselves a little bit too much and therefore doing ourselves a bit of a disservice? I could see why you might say that, but I feel like the way I see research is it's empowering to all of those other roles. It's empowering to the legal team, to the finance team, to the sales team. And so the way I've described it to my team is we're the ones who have a lot of the information. We have the insights, we have the stories and scenarios. Who better to share this than us? And what other team would have the rich data that we have there's nobody else. So we kind of owe it to our colleagues and to our companies to set up those lunch and learns, to set up those places where people can get those insights. You know, at MailChimp, and again, this was because we weren't so out in the open, we would share things and the accounting team would say, you know, what you described about credit cards is really helpful. And I didn't realize this was a problem. And here's some data that might help you. And so 
that was that illuminated how even UX research can help with an accounting team. We worked with our legal team on how our terms of service were not easy to understand. And so I do think it's it's on us as researchers to take all this helpful information and share it, even with an audience that didn't ask for it, because it one, it, it helps everybody make better decisions, even if they didn't ask for that information. It's, it's new knowledge that will help them. But two, it helps us position research as something that should be a part of everybody's decision making. I do want to be, I, I do want research to have, uh, you know, influence in the C-suite advising the CEO or the CPO. The best way to do that is to keep sharing the value of what we're learning and make it as transparent as possible. So I am on board with creating highlight reels, with putting highlights or findings in Slack, with doing lunch and learns and ride-alongs. I know it's a lot more work than other teams have to do. They don't, nobody expects them to perform what they do. I think we kind of have to, if we want to see our field continue, otherwise nobody will understand what we do or, or the value of it. Yeah. And we do have a great drive and I'm speaking generic, generically or generally here to, and it's, it's a bit of a um, catch cry of our field really to make the world better. And I think that gives us the energy to do these types of things. But like most things, the devil's in the detail as to how you do these things as to the outcome that you mm -hmm. get. So I, I hear what you're saying around the lunch and learns and posting in Slack and increasing those opportunities for people to collide with the work to spark realizations for them that might then add value back to the product and the company. But in your experience, what has been the, the right tone to set? Like how have you set up that platform and those collisions to have the most impact? I try to avoid the collisions and, you know, part of any onboarding for any researcher is to do some sort of listening tour and meet with people who, whether they are going to be on your team or not, even if they are, a teammate three times removed, I still try to get time with them. So I understand what information they use to make decisions and, and how they make, how they structure their work so that when I am finding something from my research, I can share it with them and say, Hey, you mentioned X, Y, and Z. I just interviewed somebody and, you know, and I, I will hedge and say, it's a small sample size. It's only one person, but this seems like it's something you were interested in. And if it's helpful, I will keep sharing things on this topic. So I've tried to already, you know, set the stage and build a relationship so that when I do have information, it, it comes from a place of collaboration and not, you know, hey, here's something you should know from a stranger. It's, hey, we've talked about this. And I always try to frame things as you didn't ask for this. You mentioned you might be interested. You don't have to use this to inform your decisions, but it's here. You might as well know about it. Uh, so I'm, I'm very careful to say I'm not being prescriptive, but I do want you to know that this information exists and there's more of it where that came from. Uh, so it's, it's very diplomatic and, you know, kind of respectful and really, you know, I said, I don't want research to be a service for the organization, but it is providing a service. It's not, you know, doing what people ask you to do. It's going above and beyond and, and trying to be helpful to your colleagues. That's what I was, was hearing. It's like, it's almost like this is your, you view this as something that's your responsibility outside of the day-to-day -day of delivering on the projects that are on the roadmap or whatever else you've put in place in terms of planning. Like this is your way of building awareness and openness to culture, research culture, and the value that research can provide outside of those things. Yeah, it's, I was going to say, you know, you say research culture and 
to me, that's the thing that I'm most excited about when it comes to UX research. You know, I, I love doing the projects, but what I love more is being able to say like, hey, we have information on that thing that your whole job revolves around. Um, we have some findings. We have a survey that might be relevant to you. So, you know, at Vox, there was an entirely new podcast marketing team. My team had been doing studies on how people find and share our content. It happened to include podcast data. So the day that I shared podcast findings with this new team and they were just like, I, you know, I didn't even know we had this. This is amazing. You know, that, <laughs> that to me, you know, it's building a relationship. It's, it's spreading the value of research. That's the stuff to me that's super exciting. And, you know, I, that's what, that's why I, I love this job. Yeah, there's the serendipity in those moments, isn't it? And they can create yeah. a whole lot of value. Well, let's let's talk about Vox because I understand Vox at the time that you were there was around about 400 people or so, and you were the senior director of research when you left. So there was obviously quite an influential role there. You had the opportunity at Vox to work directly with the CEO. What yeah. was that experience like? You know, what were the problems? How did that come to be? And what were the kind of problems or opportunities you were helping the CEO to understand and explore? Yeah, so just to kind of frame where I was in the company, I started as the first user researcher. I was embedded on a specific product team building internal tools. So the CMS, the content management system that all the writers and editors use to publish stories or videos or newsletters, whatever it was. Over time, though, my role expanded to include understanding who our audience was, and I was able to show, you know, here's some product opportunities, here's some design opportunities uh, that would help our audiences and, you know, future audience members find and consume our content. When I became senior director, I started reporting to our chief product officer, and he was able to take my work, and when our CEO was curious, you know, we are currently an ad-supported company. What might it look like to start charging money for a subscription product? My, my manager, the CPO, was able to say to the CEO, you know, if you're thinking of studying this, put Greg on it, put Greg's team on it. They've been asking questions around this and they could really help us get some answers. So the CEO put together a task force that included research, analytics, finance, and editorial to make sure that we had all our angles covered. So what do audiences expect? How do they think about paying for content now? What is our traffic now? And what might it look like if we started to put it behind a paywall? Um, would we make enough money to actually offset the loss in ad revenue? And So these are big, big, like, big questions. existential questions, right? Like if you get this yep. stuff wrong, that, that can be you know the death of a, of a company. Yeah, if, if we said we were gonna do this and we had to hire you know three or four writers to create paywalled content, that's salaries. For those writers that we hire, that's tech we have to invest in to put up a paywall. That's credit card processing fee. Like there's so much that goes into something that seems as simple as let's put a, you know, a subscription form on the website. So because of my manager, um, his name is Joe Alicata, or he was my manager at the time. He was the one who was able to advocate for research being in the right place at the right time. He was able to share previous work. He was able to, to present, you know, our approach and what we've done in the past and, that's how my team worked with the CEO to help us figure out what might subscriptions at Vox Media look like. So it, again, it all goes down to having a manager who is empowering and, and supportive and can advocate for you. And thinking back to that time, what was the finding that surprised you the most or what was the direction that you ended up going down when you were trying to answer those research questions? That's funny. We started by studying two of our biggest publications, Vox.com and The Verge. 
And for the Vox audience, there wasn't really a subscription product they wanted or cared about. They just wanted to support good journalism. They felt it was a civic duty. So for that audience, there wasn't really anything we needed to offer other than access to, you know, maybe a Slack channel where they could engage with journalists, a quarterly planning call where they could hear from the editors, maybe a tote bag. But for them, the, the value was just supporting good journalism. However, when you talk to the Verge audience, it's entirely different. They really wanted something very specific, which was an ad-free browsing experience. They never wanted to see an ad no matter what, which that kind of is in line with that Verge audience. They're tech savvy. They, they know when site performance is slow because ads are loading. They know that ads are disruptive. So they were very, very clear on what they wanted. But the funny thing is when we did the math and you know th this was a few years ago now, but the amount of revenue we'd need to make to offset the cost of investing in editorial staff and the technology to charge money, we couldn't make the numbers work. We were not gonna make enough at the time to go totally uh, subscription-based or to even do you know a, a specific subscription product. Instead, we saw that there were opportunities to partner with YouTube, with their YouTube subscription channels. So Vox Video Lab has a subscription tier for you know additional videos. We also were able to partner with Apple News Plus, where some specific Vox content is released early and only to Apple News Plus Vox subscribers. Um, and then that content is later released to the general public, which was also a finding from the research. The audience did not want any news to be kept from people. They wanted all news to be out in the open. They felt that news is a right, not a privilege. And so they're very specific that any subscription products should not keep information from people who should be reading it. So by partnering with Apple News Plus, we could stagger the release of the content and release it to the general public a week after it was on Apple News Plus. So we saw there was an appetite. We saw what people wanted. And we also saw that it wasn't viable at the time to go totally subscription focused. I get the sense from hearing you talk about that, that the actual outcome, what you ended up deciding to do as a business, didn't align 100% with the the hypothesis or where you thought it might go when you kicked things off. I mean, yeah. don't let me put, put words in your mouth, but research shouldn't be something that is deployed to rubber, rubber stamp some executive's pet project. And it can be, and it has been in the past used to do that. And I'm curious to know whether you've ever had to compromise on the outcomes of your findings to keep a senior stakeholder happy? Just to, I guess, wrap up the Vox conversation. What I loved about that project is there was no specific direction. This was purely a discovery project where we didn't know what the appetite for subscriptions was. And in fact, my hypothesis was people would stop paying for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times in order to pay for Vox. And what we learned was people would pay in addition to those other products. And so I, I never felt like I had to tailor my findings to make somebody happy. Maybe I might be more prepared or, you know, careful about who I work with or how I frame my work, but I don't think I've had to make a trade-off to keep a stakeholder happy because I think part of our job as researchers is to be very clear on, okay, what decisions will we make based on this research? What is on the table that's, you know, changeable or what, you know, what can we actually do with this research? And if those answers are not good or the, you know, the way the research will be used doesn't make sense, I, I'm going to reframe the study in a way that is good for research and good for the company. 
I also try not to work with people who would expect research to be bent to serve a hypothesis. I, I've, I've been careful about who I work with. I realize it's a very privileged position to be in, but I've been careful about who I, I work with and for, and I've tried to not be in a position to have to make a stakeholder happy. I don't think I'd want to be in a place where I have to. I'd probably choose to just leave versus doing that. So and again, it's a privileged like position. <laughs> Yeah, one hundred percent. But it sounds like you've been quite—you're quite intentional as to how you frame up the the desired outcome from the work before the work begins, so that if it comes to a point where you're having to deliver what might be perceived as bad news, that it's not really bad news. It's just not quite what we we thought it might be, or one person might be. It's just it is what it is, and this is what the research is telling us. And now we get to make a decision off the back of that. You know, one trick I learned from some friends who were at uh, the research practice at Etsy is mm -hmm. it's pretty common now, but back when they shared this with my team, it was kind of like, oh, this is great. They set up a Google form as uh, an intake for all research proposals, even for teams that they worked with often. And the beauty of having that form is it forces your stakeholder or whoever it is that's requesting research to list out, you know, where did this project come from? What do we hope to learn from this? What are our hypotheses? What will we do with this information? And so you're basically getting a contract. You're getting it in writing that this is the shape of the project and these are the decisions we'll make. And so at that point, you know, I would take that form. I turn it into a research, you know, proposal uh, or a living archive of the project as we're working on it. But everything was already set in stone, so to speak, because... I have that form and I've already got it locked in. This is what this is where the project came from and these are the decisions we will make. So to then be asked to bend the research findings to meet that, you kind of avoid that because you already know, you know, these are the, the decisions and this is what we're trying to learn. Um, you have it all in writing. You're, you're not going to change how you deliver it or you're not going to change your approach to sharing it. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but for me, having that all spelled out ahead of time, it kind of locks me into knowing, okay, this this is what's on the table and everything else is kind of out of scope. Yeah. It sounds like it just ensures the integrity of the of the work and avoids yeah. the potential of awkward conversations happening in the future. Um, you mentioned I, I also oh I, hmm. I just want to say like sometimes a stakeholder will ask you to change things not out of malice, but because they just don't they haven't worked with research before or they're not quite sure you know, what you're supposed to do with findings. And, you know, in that case, uh, I can't recall the time that's happened, but uh, I'm part of a research like leaders group. And we talk about things like this. Sometimes it's just a matter of teaching your, your stakeholder, you know, that's not really a good use of research, but if that's something that you're curious about, or you, you really are sensitive to this particular finding, maybe we do another round of research to flesh this out. Um, maybe it's another study. So it's also a teachable moment to to show people how to work with research and, and you know, maybe it's not malintent or, you know, something, something untowards. It, it could be something more innocent. hundred percent. And I, I was actually talking to Dr. Laura Faulkner about a similar uh, topic. She runs, I think she's director of user research at Rackspace and she has a similar approach. And when she has those conversations with those stakeholders, she has them one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. um, and it's almost like we, as researchers, if you have a reaction from a stakeholder, you need to get curious about that and then go and approach that stakeholder directly in a one-on-one -on -one situation to explore that. And you may come to, as Greg suggested, a, 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 another round of research that you need to do or a different decision to, to help that stakeholder get to a happier place. Greg, you mentioned that that tip came from the team at Etsy, having that form 
to give to stakeholders so they can submit their research requests to the team. Now, I'm also aware that you've got another great tip to share with people, and particularly if they're if you're a research leader or a design leader, you're going to want to listen to this. What are the magic words for unlocking UX research headcount? The magic word is de-risk. We are going to de-risk these projects to make sure that we are getting the answers we need to ensure success. And so the beauty of that form is you're capturing the demand for research. And then you get to go to your manager and say, look at all these people who are proposing research projects. I don't have enough headcount nor hours in the day to de-risk all of these projects, which means we're gonna launch projects that, or products that might not align to user expectations. They might have some fundamental errors. We need to hire headcount in order to mitigate this risk. It's a very businessy way to, to frame the problem of headcount, but it's also what your leader can then take to the accounting or finance or HR team and say, well, we have outstanding demand for research and we really do need to de-risk these projects. So we really need to open headcount. So it, it is effective. Yeah, it is a very businessy term, isn't it? Now, I, I wonder if we take that term and we think about the implications for that and the kind of people that like finance that it appeals to those those sorts of terms. It sounds like we are verging into needing to quantify the impact of the work. Because if I think about that term de-risk and it's a term that I've I use, actually I've used it in my intro, right? I use that because I know that it, it, it gets attention and people want that. People are risk averse. Businesses themselves don't want to sacrifice current cash flows for the hope of future cash flows if it's not a certain thing, right? So it really does speak to business people. Have you had to quantify that de-risking in any way? Or have you had any challenge come back from finance or procurement or whoever it might be to demonstrate in some way, shape or form what that de-risking will deliver? I haven't. And I think it again goes back to having managers who understand the work and the demand for research so that when I say, you know, we have three projects that we can't get to on this one topic, we really could use some help. It is already quantified based on the demand. It's not me coming up with a wish list. It's really based on actual needs for the organization to be successful. And, you know, another tip is if that demand is tied to, you know, OKRs for the organization, or, you know, it could just be, Maybe it's not OKRs, but it's, you know, whatever your company's three big initiatives are for the next year. If you are able to demonstrate that there is demand for this, it's a company goal, but we don't have the headcount to support any aspect of it. I mean, I, I think that that quantifies the, the demand. You, you are showing that there's a lack of research for this topic that has already been articulated as important to the organization. So uh, that should be the beginning and end of the conversation. Like, yes, we will hire Otherwise, what's the point of having a research team if you're not going to empower them and, and support them to actually do research? Mm, yeah, 100%. When someone in the business says, we don't have the time to do that, to do that research, what are they really saying? They might think that they don't have time because their understanding of research is limited. They might think that, you know, I've heard of organizations that hated research because they thought everything was ethnography. Uh, every study had to take three to six months. And then the other end of the spectrum are the people who think research is a, a two-day you know, usability test on usertesting.com. So when people say they don't have time, they have a misconception of what research looks like and when to use it. It could also mean that they don't care, you know, but I choose to think more positively that it's not malice. 
uh, it's just a misunderstanding or, or a misalignment of, of research expectations. And again, it's a teachable moment. If a stakeholder really is anti-research though, fine, <laughs> go, go forth and, and work on your own and come to us when the product doesn't perform as you expected or it's misaligned. But <laughs> And we'll know, say, we, team... we told you so. No, we won't say that, will we? We won't we'll say be that. Much more magnanimous than that. Yes. We'll say this is a great opportunity to, to try that again and, and see what we might learn about our audience or our users. I think Greg's much more diplomatic than, than I am. That's maybe why I work as a, um, as a consultant rather than in-house. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think diplomacy is the, the research superpower, right? That you have to be yeah. able to work with everybody. 100%. Yeah, it's a really, it's a critical skill. It's probably in any field, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't yeah. work well with anyone, don't, t don't tend to do terribly well. You know, we were just speaking about time from the business stakeholders' point of view, where they feel they don't have time to do research. You know, this is also something that affects pretty much everyone working in a, I'd say, a Western economy where we've got goals to hit and targets to achieve. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pressure also on UX researchers and people that are leading those teams. Through your experience, you know, you've been the solo researcher having to field the questions from everyone in the organization all on your own. And you've also managed teams of other researchers. How have you helped yourself and helped them to manage and decide what to focus on and what's mm -hmm. not important to focus on, you know, manage that stress, that time pressure? Yeah, that's, that's a lesson that it took me a while to learn. But once I learned it, it, it kind of unlocked everything. And that is, prioritize research based on how it's going to impact revenue, which I know is, you know, a very capitalistic way to answer it. But I mean, we work for organizations that need to make money in order to pay us our salaries and, you know, to pay the bills. So I always tie project priorities to revenue. And so that impacts, okay, what are we going to work on this quarter? Well, we've received a number of requests, there's a number of possibilities, but which ones will actually help the company stay in business and remain a company, uh, which ones have, even if it's not something we're selling now, what are the projects that will lead us to selling something that might help the company down the line? And that's also a way that I advise the people I'm reporting. Um, when it comes to, okay, what should we work on this quarter? Well, you have a number of possibilities, but the most impactful or the ones most in line with our company OKRs are these three. So let's make these three the only things we work on this quarter. And it's also a way to ruthlessly prioritize and say no to the things that don't matter. So there might be a fun project that seems like it would be great and we'd learn a lot. If it's going to make no impact to the company bottom line, or even if there's like if there's no chance that we'll ever even grow legs and maybe eventually impact the bottom line, like deprioritize it. I'm going to say that there's an asterisk that goes with that one though, an asterisk. I always mispronounce that word, which is... Um, when you are a manager of researchers, you do want to make sure that your team is doing projects that they also find personally invigorating. So you do want to make sure that there is time and space for them to take on projects that they personally find interesting that might not be the most important. So that could be a project where they're trying a new methodology. They're speaking to a group of people they normally don't speak with. They are uh, tackling a subject matter that they don't usually tackle. I will make exceptions to say if it's a project that will grow the team's knowledge uh, or grow the team's expertise or skill set, that's an exception to how do we choose what to work on. But usually the answer is what's going to impact the company bottom line. And I've worked at nonprofits before. 
even when the goal is we need to bring in donations and build awareness, okay, if the research project is not going to bring in donations or build awareness, it's probably not a good project. Uh, that, that's my framework for picking what to work on and, and you know what my team works on. I, I like the asterisks too, and that is a tricky word. It makes me think of yeah. a- asterisks and obliques, the uh, the comic yeah. books. Oh, yeah, <laughs> anyway. Um, but that's quite an important dis- like distinction and call out to make as well because what you're saying is it's like that analogy of the rocks in the jar. Like if you put all the sand in the jar first, you're going to find that you're not going to have enough room to put the the big and important things that are actually going to make the the company some revenue or some profit and contribute in a massive way. But if you put those into the jar first, then you can always find time and space to fit a few pebbles or a few grains of sand in and around those things, which should help to round out the satisfaction of the team and how people are feeling. You know, this notion of the financial aspect of business and how we feel and design more broadly of which I'm encompassing research, we can feel a bit icky about this. And this is something that's come up. And, you know, I think you you were somewhat apologetic about this, Greg, you know, you sort of about the money thing, right? And this comes up, this come up a few times on the podcast. And I was speaking the other week to Dan Bukowski, who runs Product Tranquility. So he's an ex-head of product. He now has a consultancy which helps product companies to determine their product strategy, their pricing and their packaging. So that's very much focused on the the bottom line and the dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And his observation and the product teams and organizations he's worked with has been that often he finds that UX researchers are uncomfortable or inexperienced in helping the business to determine how to price its products. Is that a fair observation? I think it's fair, but I don't think it's because of, I think that stems from a lack of experience in doing that type of research because it's not traditional UX research. It's usually something, there's pricing strategy experts who will come in and help you figure out a pricing strategy. There's market research organizations that will do this. It's not traditionally a UX research function. And so I think that's why there might be some discomfort. However, it is a learnable skill and there are you know, UX research approaches that will get you to pricing strategy when we were trying to figure out the Vox.com subscription uh, or the Verge subscription, we did have to do a bit of competitive analysis to understand what people pay for, uh, both per month and per year. We had to look at, you know, is pricing a trade-off or is cost a trade-off? Is it something where people have a budget or they're willing to spend whatever it takes? And so using that, you can figure out how somebody might pay for something or what the price right price is. In fact, We did a really fascinating study when I was at MailChimp around MailChimp Pro, which was a professional add-on. It was a way to give people enterprise tools at at an extra cost for their monthly plan. The way we got to that was we studied anybody who had closed a MailChimp account and went to a competitor. We knew that because we would send an account closure survey. We learned where they went. We looked at what they're paying now versus what they had been paying for MailChimp. We were able to figure out an optimal price between what the MailChimp account costs and what they were now paying for more expensive software. And that helped us determine a price that was fair and competitive, but also felt premium enough where people would feel like they were getting something extra from from that additional tool set. So I guess what I'm saying is it's a learnable skill. There's different ways to do it, but it's not usually something that I've seen UX research teams do. So it does require a bit of creativity to figure out how to get there. Yeah. So th- thinking about this context of the business, you know, there's also this 
cry out there that designers need to better understand the businesses that they work for. Now, obviously, OKRs and what we're all striving for and having some financial literacy is useful. Verging into some quant research can also be useful when you're exploring things like pricing, like you've just described for MailChimp. What are the common blind spots, though, that you see out there when it comes to UX researchers and their understanding of the business? What is it that we we really need to spend a little bit more time and energy and invest in understanding that we don't quite yet have a great grasp on now? This might be my designer brain speaking, but presenting and sharing findings. I think that we have so much, we have so much information we're collecting, but if you are not a storyteller, if you're not somebody who can visually or, you know, audibly design how you're sharing that information, you're not doing the research or your organization, um, you're doing them a disservice. And so I think that's one blind spot is just knowing how to package findings. It does take a little bit of, you know, sales salesperson experience that could feel as icky as talking about money or studying money, but you you have to figure out how to communicate and meet your, your stakeholders or your peers where they are uh, and frame your research in a way that might not be the way you would prefer to frame it. It could mean, it could mean using uh, plain language when you would prefer to use academic language. Um, it could be designing gripping presentations when you prefer to just send a document. I've started recording myself talking about what I'm hearing so people can pick up on energy and, and listen to me ramble while they're doing other tasks. So I think that's, that's our blind spot for me, at least from the researchers I've worked with, is knowing how to share and talk about your work. And I'm just going to put a little plug out there for a previous guest of the podcast, Donna Spencer. She's got a wonderful book, which I believe it's a very small book called Presenting Design Work. And it's pretty much entirely what you've spoken about, Greg, there is how do we actually get comfortable and that how do we understand what it is that the stakeholders were presenting to actually uh, what they actually want to receive and how do we get that across to them to increase the impact of our work. Yeah, Totally. Greg, as we bring the show down to a close, let's talk about something that's life-changing and that happened to you and to your family. I understand that you're a father and you're also a husband and that in 2013, you received some extremely shocking news. What was that news? In 2013, my wife developed a sore inside of her mouth and upon examination, it turned out to be uh, a cancerous growth. And the type of cancer was a surprise. It's, it's the type of cancer you get when you are an older male who has smoked and drank all your life. So this was not a type of cancer Alyssa should have had. Uh, we had surgery locally to remove the growth. Then there was additional surgery shortly after that because the first surgery didn't remove everything. And then it was time to look into uh, radiation treatment, chemo and radiation. and because this was such an aggressive cancer, we felt like we needed to treat it aggressively and go to a, a world-renowned cancer institute. We went to the MD Anderson Cancer Institute in Houston, Texas. We relocated. I was able to take a leave of absence from my work at MailChimp. Uh, they were gracious enough to just support us and let me work remotely when remote work wasn't even uh, a popular thing. And I so can't imagine, she, you know, like what we, this is like. We had to leave our kids because they were still in school. We had to rent an apartment. Really? We were there for about three months. Uh, mm -hmm. She had chemo and radiation treatment. And it was the hardest thing we've ever gone through. And, you know, I say we, I mean, my wife, Alyssa, is the one who went through it. I was, you know, a passenger, but 
it was still very scary to have, you know, your partner dealing with something this significant and dangerous. It's been a number of years now. She is now officially cancer-free. The chemo and radiation worked. But the reason that I've, I've shared this story before, and I think the reason you're bringing it up is our experience at MD Anderson was unlike any experience we've ever had, where we we met with the doctor the first time we visited and he just wanted to hear our story. He wanted all the context around everything in our lives, understanding that we have kids, understanding that my wife is a psychologist and has to use her voice to speak to clients, understanding that she's a vegetarian and you know has a limited diet. Um, and for everything that we shared with him, he was able to incorporate that into her cancer treatment. So there was speech therapy to make sure that she regained strength in her, her tongue and vocal cords uh, because the treatment was really impacting her ability to speak and, and move her tongue. There was counseling to make sure that our kids had the right information and we communicated what was happening effectively. And even though my wife's a psychologist and specializes in treating children and families, it was still thoughtful and helpful to have somebody who is on our side to help us with that. And so everything we shared ended up being incorporated into a treatment plan. And every doctor we encountered had that information at the ready as soon as we walked in, which is unlike what it's usually like when you go to a doctor where you're telling the same story over and over and over. And it's like, you're starting from scratch every single appointment. In this case, everyone was on the same page and it was so thoughtful. And the thing that stuck with me, in addition to the you know, world-class level of care was just how they thought about bringing the context of everything we told them into the treatment plan. It changed how I thought about my work and, and how I should think about collecting information and, and everything is important. Everything's going to be useful to people who you work with. We can't just narrow our scope to what's right in front of us. We have to understand, you know, what's the wider context in which we work. And so not only was that a significant family event and family trauma, but it just gave me a different outlook on how I can do my job and how I could be a research, I guess, uh, leader and advocate for research and the value of it, because that's what they were doing at MD Anderson is they were doing research and making it useful for everybody. And just to contrast that back to the experience locally that you had, how long did they spend with you at MD Anderson and <laughs> understanding your wife and your family versus the conversation that you had locally at the hospital? At MD Anderson, we spent about two hours with the doctor the first time we met him. And at no point did he make us feel like he was late for another appointment or ready to go play a round of golf. I mean, he just sat there and chatted with us. It, it was unlike any experience I've ever had with a doctor because when we met with the local doctor, it was his nurse who came in and said, this is what your treatment will look like. And this is what the post-operative care will look like. And this is what the recovery will look like. Do you have any questions? It was not, there was no give and take. There was no context gathering. It was really, this is how we do things here. Uh, and this is how we're going to fit you into our process. There and was new, no, no humanity in that, in that experience. There was no user experience. It was, a, it was a negative user experience. There wasn't a lot of humanity. And it was pretty cynical. It, it didn't make us feel optimistic about anything. And it, it really felt like what we had read, you know, when we researched on Google was accurate, that this is not a good place to be, you know, medically. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, Greg. What you've just shared, I think, ties back into an earlier part of our conversation 
where we were talking about the importance or you were talking about the importance of as as researchers being subservient putting your ego to the side really truly trying to seek to understand while also being the expert and the professional which it sounds like that that's what that doctor or the doctors at md anderson managed to achieve both of 100 percent. they you know they are the experts they know all the options available but they didn't have a preconceived idea of what course of action to take until they had our perspective and that informed the process and you know the proof is in the pudding my wife is cancer free um you know we still monitor her condition of course but what they did worked and i would like to think that it's because it was a holistic approach to treating the cancer and not not limited greg it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today thank you for being so generous with your contribution to this field of ux research that we work in and also for today for being so generous and open with the stories and experiences that you've shared brendan it was an honor to be on your podcast and i, I really appreciate being here thank you so much you're most welcome greg if people want to find out more about you and your book, you know, the wonderful work and the, the knowledge and learnings that you're sharing with the community, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm very findable on LinkedIn and Twitter. I have a website, greg.io, where you can find information about the book. And if you just want to go ahead and purchase it, you can find it at researchpractice.co. And that'll link you to the right marketplace for your part of the world. Wonderful. And it's Greg with two G's, people. So two G's, don't forget that. <laughs> Many Thanks, <G's>. Greg. <laughs> Thanks, Brendan. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything that we've covered will be in the show notes on YouTube, including where you can find Greg and the book, as Greg's just mentioned. So don't worry, they will be there as well. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review. They make a big difference. Subscribe to the podcast. And also, if you feel that there's someone else in your sphere, a colleague or a friend that would find value in these conversations then pass the conversation pass the podcast along to them if you want to reach out to me you can find me on linkedin as well and i'll put a link to that at the bottom of the show notes on youtube as well or you can head over to the spaceinbetween.co.nz that's the spaceinbetween.co.nz and until next time keep being brave hey, hey.